you could see how inflation could spin out of control under certain environments. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. It's not going to happen probably in the next several weeks, but it doesn't take a lot where the numbers that we saw, that we experienced in the recent past, would basically look like nothing compared to what we experience in the future. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right. We're hodlers. We're not sellers. I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I have set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. So all you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. I'm excited to announce my new sponsor, Cake Wallet, who I've recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share your important information with unnecessary third parties. And with Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching, and the app is designed to make it super easy to set up your wallet and back up your private keys. Now, if you want to find out more and check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Next up, it is BCB Group. BCB Group provides online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a bank and they also understand Bitcoin and they reached out to me so I've moved my business banking across to BCB and I could not be happier. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also, we have Compass Mining, but they are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of Compass and I am back mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for nine months with Compass now, and I've already mined 0.66 Bitcoin, which has paid off two of my S19s already. Now, any of you can start mining with Compass Mining, and to help you, Compass has launched their Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors like price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes Bitcoin mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Peter, good to see you again. Nice to see you, Peter. Nice to meet you in person. 
Same. Because we did this last time during the lockdowns. Correct. Over Zoom. Um, it was a very popular show. It was a very popular show. It was very good for us crazy Bitcoin people to hear uh, about the environment, the macro environment, somebody who's more experienced, been doing this a long time. I think we sometimes are perhaps a bit naive in our outlook. I certainly am. And uh, it was very useful to, to hear from you. But since we did that, the world's got a lot more crazy. And the economy seems to be wherever you are, whether you're in the UK, whether you're here in the US. Uh, uh, we're facing levels of inflation I, I've never experienced in my adult life. Um, and I'm also seeing even worse conditions in places like Sri Lanka and We've seen in Lebanon. So there's a lot going on. Uh, there's a lot of people very nervous. And I guess today I'm going to look to you for how you see things. So I don't, I don't know uh, if we got into it on the last uh, time we spoke, but we were concerned about inflation. And we were early on um, recognizing that it was a problem. And it's really a function of the supply. And it goes back probably... 35, 40 years of underinvestment uh, in various commodities and particularly uh, oil and gas. And I guess it got kicked into high gear around the year 2014. And the problem is that the, the demand continues to grow, but the supply is not there to meet the demand. And the correcting mechanism is the price. And that's what you're going to see. And governments around the world are seeming to double down, i.e. let's destroy the supply but the, not find a way to, to basically lessen the demand. So you're going to see, in my opinion, in our opinion, you're going to see higher prices uh, even from here. Have you experienced any similar uh, times where this has happened before? I guess the 1970s, um, but this is completely different. Um, this is really, the, there was much more of an abundance. There was a lot less uh, pushback from trying to get uh, refining plants up mining uh, facilities up, et cetera. So here there's a, there's a real concerted effort by governments around the world to prevent that from happening. And the demand continues to grow for those. So it's, uh, it's worse than the 1970s, or it's likely to be worse than the 1970s. And I guess with energy, we would all love a uh, good continual supply of uh, energy, whether it's for uh, fueling your car or heating your home. But naturally, I expect energy markets have their own bull and bear markets, which sees the investment in uh, uh, you know, uh, finding new sources of energy, whether that is uh, building out power plants, building out nuclear facilities, whether it's finding new sources of oil and gas. But the problem with uh, responding to supply and demand is that it takes a long time to build out this infrastructure. Correct. So even, even if it, we started today and said we're going to start building out this additional capacity, it will take five to ten years uh, minimum. But we're not starting today. So that's, that's why it's likely to get worse before it gets better. And why, why was there so much underinvestment? Um, variety of reasons. It's a boom and bust cycle. Um, there's governments around the world don't want it. Um, you know, the returns on, on capital weren't particularly attractive. Um, so investors started pulling money away, uh, a variety of reasons. But most, most, most recently, it's been the governments around the world preventing that. And they just don't want refineries. I think there's only been one refinery built here in the United States since 1977. And I think at least six have shut down. Is that due to concerns regarding global warming, climate change, and 
uh, it's not politically desirable to build out these kind of facilities? That most recently, that's definitely been the the fundamental reason. Yeah. See, we were uh, people won't know, but obviously we were discussing my interview with Alex Epstein before this, and uh, for some people, Alex is. Uh, He's not palatable because he has a view that we should be uh, burning more fossil fuels and that's really important for uh, humans to flourish and productivity. And you can certainly see a side of his argument which is entirely valid here. Yeah, well, the consumption of energy typically is accompanied with the uh, rise in standard of living around the world. And there's, you know, three plus billion people that would love to live on a much higher standard of living. And the only way for them to do that is to consume more energy. Um, so you have to, I think his argument really has some validity in the sense that he's saying you have to weigh the detriments with the benefits. And there's a lot of benefits to basically more consumption of energy. Now, obviously, I think everybody, unless you're a psychopath, <laughs> wants to have a cleaner world. And I think people are recognizing that perhaps there is climate change that is happening as a result of the burning of fossil fuels, et cetera. But you can't, the problem is you can't go from this quote renewable, even though there's no such thing as renewable energy, um, without basically a proper backup. Um, and we don't have that. So they're, they're trying to kill the supply, but they're not killing the demand. Um, and that's that's a real problem. And the correcting again, the correcting mechanism is the price. And how much has the war in Ukraine and Russia compounded this issue? Um, it just accelerated it months. Oh, is that all it is? That's all it is. That's all it is. This this was coming whether whether that occurred or not. That this just crystallized it and, and pushed it up six seven months. Oh wow! So these predictions I've seen of say three hundred dollars for a barrel of oil is that is that highly possible? Uh, absolutely high, highly possible. Possible for two reasons. One, supply and demand. And two, you keep debasing your currency. Um, you you want to get down to the base layer of what's important uh, to run a society, and you're going to find it's oil and gas. So if there's a lack of supply, people with the money will pay that price. So it wouldn't shock me, and it wouldn't shock me if it happened in the not-too-distant future. Well, what role does someone like OPEC play in this? Because they have the ability to increase production... Um, but they also benefit from the higher prices. Um, do they play a role in this? Do they have an incentive? So, you know, nobody really can get behind the curtain uh, in in the way that really does, you can determine whether or not they truly have the capacity. So they've been under producing for the last year plus, um, and it's not clear that they actually can turn on the spigots and and get it going that much greater than it currently is. I think Saudi Arabia probably could do some, um, but my guess is that basically they're they're operating at capacity now and that's that's really the problem is if the united states probably could increase production but the administ current administration really seems to be against that so um in addition to that the valuations for a lot of the oil and gas companies are so low their best use of capital really is to pay down their debt, buy back their shares. Um, and I think that's what the shareholders are demanding. So in, unless those stocks get re-rated in the market, they're not going to go out and explore for more oil and gas. They're, their best investment is sitting right in front of them in their own stock. Interesting. There's another potential compounding effect in the UK specifically. I'm not sure if you've seen this, but uh, we're facing, facing much higher energy prices. Oh, my electricity and gas uh, bills have essentially tripled, quadrupled over the last year. Um, there's a lot of people who are in fuel poverty now and cannot afford to pay their bills. And the government is looking to fund essentially a stimulus 
check to cover energy payments uh, through a windfall tax on energy companies um, to the tune of, was it 15 billion did we look? I can't remember the but it's, I mean, it's a number. It's a very high number. Um, but by taking that money off the energy companies, that's actually going to take away from them being able to invest further in energy. It completely decentralizes them. It, it, it will basically compound the problem. So it's definitely not a solution. Longer term, it's just creating more of a problem. Yeah, but it's, it's a real wake-up call to me, Peter, in realizing how intrinsic energy prices are, or commodity prices are, to the function of the economy. It just had never crossed my mind. I, I had made a show the other day. Do you know Lynn Alden? I do. Yeah, so I made a show with her the other day, and I mentioned that a new story came out with regards to swimming pools in the UK, and they're facing a crisis because one of their biggest costs is heating the pools. And so they're facing three choices. Do they close? Uh, do they reduce their opening times? Or do they keep the pools cooler? Actually, there's a, there's a fourth one where they have less staff. But it never, I mean, obviously they could also raise their price. But that itself, to me, is just one example of probably tens of thousands whereby higher energy prices have a you know, massive hit on how businesses function. Absolutely. I mean, you, you can't function without basically crude oil. And, and there's something like 6,500 different products that use crude as a base. So all the plastics, you want to hit a golf ball, the asphalt roads that you drive on, etc. It's vital to the global economy. And I don't think people have an appreciation for that. So they, they want to move away from it. You can't just move away from it. You spent the last 160 years building an infrastructure that's based on hydrocarbons you don't move away from it in two years or five years or 10 years. It's going to take a long period of time. That's, that's the real problem. And the policies currently in place, largely in the developed world, is they're moving away from it and they're you know, trying to limit the supply of it coming onto the market and, and the demand continues to grow. And it's, the demand's not going away. So that's, that's the real problem. So I wonder why policy-wise they're not dealing with this. I think they are. I don't. I either one, they don't understand the science behind it or the importance of it, um, or two, they they don't care. And this is a way to create an inflationary environment to basically grow themselves out of their debt problems. I see. Yeah, I spoke to Lynn about this as well. There's so much debt in the system. Um, they can pay the debt off nominally, but if they create inflation, that obviously wipes away a lot of the debt. No, correct. So that's, that they did something like that in the 1970s. They let inflation run hot. And here it may, it may spin out of control because the policies have been so far gone that it, it's really... But you let, you let it go too far. You, you start seeing civil unrest and you know, people can't put, put food on their table. They're going to be pretty unhappy. And I, I have concerns about that, even here in the United States. So, so inflation is essentially the corrective mechanism for the state to pay off their debt well it's corrective measure for for bad policies and uh excessive spending in the past um and that's that's the kind of the least um uh, onerous way out of it so you could default on your on your debt but uh then you'll have a hard time basically ever ever raising capital again people trusting you etc so the best thing to do is basically debase your currency and pay back in cheaper dollars Feels like theft. Um, it's it is theft. Yeah, it, it really is theft. And you and I talked about inflation last time, and we were all aware it was coming, and we were all aware inflation was growing. Plus nine percent in the UK. Was it nine percent? Nine point one percent in Europe. 
yeah, 8.3% here. Is this as you expected? Well, that's that's the reported government CPI numbers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, 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 you know, in, inflation is not a single number. Of course. Um, so it's a basket. And somebody's inflation could be 7%. Somebody else's inflation could be 22%. Um, so it's it's a problem, whatever the number is. My, my best guess is probably upwards of 12, 15% actually. Wow. Okay. So it, everyone's is different, but generally speaking, the the CPI number which they're using is probably very few people's real inflation. Correct. Correct. I, you know, my colleague, and I think he's correct in his thinking along these lines, he thinks the better measure of inflation is the growth of money supply. And it, that's been over 36% over the last two years. So that's 18% per annum. And it's, the reason for that is you inject more money into the system, but you don't produce that much more goods and services. That's very inflationary. Right. Okay. So, and do you think there's a lag with that? Therefore, we may see 36% over a stretched period? Yeah, I do. I think the compounding effect of whatever reported government numbers of 8% this year, 12% next year, 7% the year after, et cetera, I think they're going to have a hard time bringing inflation down. I think, I think it's primarily going to be because it's going to be commodity driven and the shortages of commodities. So if you want to buy, you know, even if you want to buy an electric car, lithium's up, you know, 170% per you know, year over year, whatever the number is, it's a big number. And let's talk a little bit about the civil unrest, because you, you say you have concerns about that. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think governments get themselves into problems when you, uh, there's a debt crisis and debt burden, uh, and, and this is true globally, and including the developed worlds, then you... People can't afford that because they're inflating that and you're on a fixed wage and suddenly you were able to eat, uh, put five, seven meals on, on the table a week and suddenly now you're only able to do four, you become pretty ornery, you know, you get upset over something like that. So that's going on in other places in the world. Uh, you mentioned Sri Lanka yeah, before Sri we Lanka's talked about that. Uh, they're burning the houses down. They're burning the houses down and you see it, you'll see it, you know, here if, 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 if it ever got that bad. You know, the, the, the great thing about, you know, looking solely from the United States, we, we do have a lot of natural resources and, and this is correctable, um, but it has, you have to have the will behind that in order for that to happen. And you have a stronger currency and good reserves. Well, we, ha we have the currency that's likely to be the last one standing. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it's a good one. I think that the basement has been just staggering over the last several years and started in 2008. Um, and to me, it seems like... If you want to talk about theft, mm. they keep debasing the money that way. They're stealing your time, your efforts, et cetera, um, because your, your labor is buying less and less goods and services. And, you know, obviously there's a demand because oil is priced in commodities are priced in dollars, et cetera. So there's, there's a global demand. But you can see countries are starting to pull away from that. So China, Russia, et cetera, um, would like to not have that system in place anymore. My guess is that sometime in, you know, knock wood, in my lifetime, uh, you'll see that the dollar may not be the reserve currency in the future. Well, it might be Bitcoin. It might be Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of yourself, and you're looking at this inflation number, do you, do you think we still might go higher? Or do you think we're going to maybe level out but at a high number? Yeah, I, I, you know, Lind makes some good points about base effects, et cetera. Um, but I think that you could see, you know, the Middle East is not exactly a very stable region of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so you could see that there could be a change of the regime in Saudi Arabia and supply of uh, oil uh, coming out of there could 
could be disrupted, et cetera. You see what's happening in Russia that's being disrupted. Uh, so you could see how inflation could spin out of control under certain environments. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. It's not going to happen probably in the next several weeks, but it doesn't take a lot where the numbers that we saw that we experienced in the recent past would basically looks, look like nothing compared to what we experience in the future. And if it's all down to the uh, increase in the money supply, you talked about going back to 2008. Um, obviously, I remember that well. And, and, but I, I'm pretty sure when I researched the numbers, the amount of money being, the, money, the creation of the money supply in 2008, 2009, relative to now, was actually much smaller. Was much, it? Wasn't it less than a trillion? Much, much smaller. I think it was somewhere right around that number. Yeah, I, I, I see. I seem to remember like eight hundred billion or something as the number, but that was rescuing a global financial crisis. And now we're not in a global financial crisis of the same kind of situation, but they printed trillions in one go. Well, the global economy shut down. Yeah. In COVID, we were traveling at 60 miles an hour and we hit a brick wall. Right? Fast, so, yeah. so it actually was even more devastating from in terms of how it's uh, you know, skidded to a halt. But um, so the need for printing that um, is questionable, in my opinion. And, you know, they kicked it into hyperdrive. Um, so it, it really had an inflationary, from a monetary standpoint, an inflationary effect. Um, and then you couple that with the commodity shortages that we were talking about earlier and it's created a real problem but was it was there malinvestment was there did they create way too much money like because i, I still can't get my head around the numbers uh 100 i mean obviously some of it was needed and probably to put things on track uh but if you're going to set up programs and have it administered by the government and we're talking in the you know hundreds of billions of dollars you're talking there's going to be plenty of waste there and you know people taking loans that they weren't entitled to undeserving etc so, so yes to answer your question now the fact that you know I, I think early on we probably knew that people under the age of 40 that were in reasonably healthy condition didn't need to be locked down in that in the way that they were um so you know probably the economy could have opened up a lot sooner and uh things would have been functioning a lot better earlier it seems to me that uh the biggest problem with the functioning economy is the, the politicians. <laughs> yeah, well, they, you know, they, they realize they, you, you can uh, generate money, create money, um, and not have people understand how it's, how it's debasing their, uh, their currency and, and taking them. Uh, they're gonna, they're gonna, it's a form of taxation, and it's, it's, uh, people aren't going to fight it because they don't understand it. So you debase the money supply uh, through various programs. Um, you, you're basically taxing people. And that's, that's really what has been going on. So what do you think the Fed should or should be doing now? Um, you know, they, they have to show that they're serious about inflation, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a real problem. The problem is that if they're too aggressive, then the stock market, capital markets will roll over very aggressively. Um, and the government derives a lot of their revenue from that. So my guess is that they're going to take it to a point and then they're going to stop and they're going to create some other or some crisis will either, I won't even say the government's going to create it, but some crisis will come about and they will ultimately start printing again. Um, and the dollar will get debased and other currencies around the world would get debased even more than the dollar, but uh, they're on the path to zero. So. so as the government creates more money and debases the currency, 
are, are you saying that has a triggering effect for other currencies? I think other cu- currencies are doing the same thing. Okay. They're doing the same thing. Yeah. So, so various, various, you know, whether it's the Eurozone, Asia, et cetera, Japan's doing it at, at an alarming rate as well. So they're, they're, they're doing the same thing. It feels like a, a quite a scary cocktail of problems that every economy is facing globally. I, I think, Lynn, and you probably discussed it, you, you have a debt crisis. You yeah. have a global debt crisis. You have a global confidence crisis in most of the major institutions, whether it's politicians, the, uh, the media, et cetera. So it's, it's, a, it's a troubling time. And it's, it's right now, from a financial standpoint, you're trying to play kind of run for your life. And you're trying to find investments that are going to be able to grow their cash flow faster than the rate of inflation. And it's a challenging uh, task. What's been going into your newsletter? What's been going on? Yeah. <laughs> so, you I know, mean, what are you doing? What are you, how are you planning for? So we, we are trying to find companies that have really very low capital expenses, um, ongoing costs, expenses, and that have the ability to pass along price increases. So you can grow your revenues, but you're not, your, reven- your expenses are not going to grow nearly as much. And you'll either expand your margins and you'll, you'll grow your cash flows faster than the rate of inflation. So that's, uh, that's largely how we've been positioned for the last two plus years and, and in anticipation of something like this. So you were prepared. We were, we were prepared. We started a, an ETF called the Inflation Beneficiaries ETF uh, back in January of 2021. And uh, it's done very well and it's done what it's supposed to do. It's a, it's a hedge against basically inflation. Where can we buy the ETF? <laughs> it's, it's traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, INFL is the symbol, inflation. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's, I, think, I think it's not really necessarily a binary bet. I don't, I don't want to be an investor in that way. It's meant to be, um, if inflation is a real problem, these are, are the companies that are likely to benefit the most. And if inflation is not, we're wrong, um, that these companies will do reasonably well on an operational basis just from the underlying business dynamics of the, of the, of the stocks themselves. So it's more kind of like low risk? Capital, capital light, um, asset light type businesses where you don't, you, you don't require a lot of basically capital to make these things going. And if, if, you're, if you're in a position where you have to pass along cost increases, you're going to be able to do that, but you're not going to get tagged on it. So just as, as an example, like various exchanges around the world, right? An exchange is essentially computers talking to one another, bringing buyers and sellers. They generally have an oligopolistic uh, position from the government. More money flows into the system, more people trading, more volatility, more people trading. You need to expand your trading capability. You buy a new computer, supercomputer. You're not really adding new people for that. You're just getting more commissions on um, more volume and you're not, your expenses aren't going up. Sounds like Bitcoin mining companies are within that category. It, it, well, it, it can work that way. Yeah. Um, so absolutely. So if, if Bitcoin continues to rise and you buy the machine at the right price, you, you'll, uh, you will work out that way. But well, okay, what about traditional energy companies? Is, is that a sound area of investment then? So it, um, to answer your question, 
we are not necessarily doing that professionally. We, we've been trying to get our exposure through the royalty companies and our biggest position by far is a company called Texas Pacific Land Trust. Okay. And it, they, they essentially allow people to, uh, they collect royalties um, for people that have drilled on their lands and price of oil goes higher, they just collect uh, bigger and bigger checks. And they're based in the western part of Texas, and uh, they have a checkered, checkered board pattern of land out there. So if you want to put a pipeline there, you want to basically put a put a road in, et cetera. Your chances are you're going to have to give them a royalty check. So <laughs> they're it's a great, great business. One of the best performing stocks on the New York Stock Exchange going back many, many, many decades um, that nobody really knows about. Um, so we something that we've been involved with professionally for you know 40 years. Huh. See, I'm I'm not a professional investor. I just buy Bitcoin. <laughs> now I will say on on a personal level, I've I've been buying some of the Canadian uh, oil companies. Okay. Um, and the reason I, I listened to a podcast of an analyst, a guy named Josh uh, Young, and he was talking about a particular company, and, I, and he said, you know, it's trading at one time or one and a half times free cash flow, and I said that seems ridiculous to me. And then I started looking at it, and, and sure enough, and virtually the entire industry was trading at a, a very low multiple and the stocks had run up very substantially and the and they the even though the stocks have been up 100 150 percent year over year the operations had grown by that amount so the the valuations were actually still and and as we speak today are still very compelling so a lot of them are trading at two or three times cash flow and you're talking about the company would be able to pay you back in full in three or four years and it has maybe 15 years of reserve lives there so you're getting 11 years for free and that's what I, I mentioned that earlier, that those companies are not going to go out and explore for more oil and gas if their stocks are that cheap. Their best investment is basically taking their cash flow and paying a dividend to their shareholders, what shareholders want, and buying back their shares because the returns are just so compelling. It feels like a very distorted market, though, because you really want these companies investing. You, you do, but you, the, the capital that, you know, through ESG movements and various organizations, endowments, you know, pensions, et cetera, moving away from oil and gas, they took the money away, they took the capital away, the overinvestment and, and lack of return that went on in the 2014 period. Now the shareholders are demanding, give me back the money um, and take that cash flow and buy your stock back, shrink your share count and give me a big dividend. And that's what they're doing. So wow. until they change that or those stocks get re-rated in the marketplace, they're not going to. They're not going to aggressively expand their production capacity. And what is your what is your read of ESG? I don't want to lead you in any direction. Um, I, th I think it's largely dysfunctional. Okay. I think it's largely dysfunctional. I think there's you know there's no rhyme or reason to it. I think it's a it's become an industry to collect fees for certain people, and they how they rate companies has no rhyme or reason. Um, again, I think I think you're. Unless you're truly crazy, you, you want to leave the world a better place and you want to leave the environment a better, better place for your children, your grandchildren, et cetera, through ESG movement is not doing that. Um, I think they're, they're making the problem worse, to be honest with you. They're making it worse. They're making it worse because they, they, they have no set policy on how they analyze these companies and, and who's truly putting a, a, a negative footprint on, onto the world. Now, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Ledger. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus. 
With a larger screen, it makes it much easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger user since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you'd like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino and is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences and that money can't buy. BitCasino has 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please gamble responsibly. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for the future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides you the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee and no foreign transaction fees and you can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases, forever. And you know what? You can also earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. If you would like to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions, all available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy for you. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it's just a click or phone call away. Casa has the best in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Take your financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Yeah, for me, ESG seems to only really actually focus on the E. Right. It seems like everybody is focused on the environmental side and their expectation is like the ESG movement is all about trying to curtail... Uh, the growth in hydro, uh, in in the uh, carbon in the atmosphere, uh, but no one ever talks about the S and the G. But at the same time, it seems it feels like the S and the G is used as excuses to promote companies who fail on the E. I mean, we saw it. I'm pretty sure it's Exxon Mobil who uh, went onto that index when Tesla was removed. Right, and right. It feels like that was the reason, but it, it it's a weird thing to to actually have ESG, ESG together because that feels almost like some kind of societal control grouping. Whereas like you can understand some desires to try and make the environment better. But, but to, to, to group them together and create a scorecard, you could destroy the environment whilst protecting the S and the G. Right. And get good marks on that and, and be included in all the e, uh, you know, EFTs. Uh, so, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what, so there's the, okay. So there's uh, ESG EFTs. Yeah, <laughs> correct. <laughs>
yeah. yeah and, and there's ratings. So every, every stock now has a rating. And, you know, so as, a, as an example, Texas Pacific Land Trust has a very high score because they don't do any of the drilling, even though they derive a lot of their revenue from the companies that are doing the drilling. So you can't assign the, quote, negative imprint um, to two companies. So they assign it to Chevron, as an example, who might drill on Texas Pacific Land. And even though Texas Pacific Land Trust is getting the cash from that. <laughs> so, so that's what that's what I mean. It's very there's there's not a really a good yardstick for how it's how it's being applied across uh, the various industries and across stocks. Joe, it reminds me of Danny. What's that? It reminds me of Web three. <laughs> do, you, do you know why? Go on. Have you do you follow this Web three stuff? Um, some. <clears throat> so for me, Web three is essentially a scam term uh, used by uh, those with a self interest, such as a. Uh, a fund, say, a Silicon Valley fund, I won't name any names, A16Z, but they have an interest in marketing a term which gets people to invest in those companies but gaslight people into thinking this is where the internet is going. Web 2 was just about experience. It was just about a better experience for you and I as a user or a change in habits. They've actually marketed a whole concept of selling tokens of which they benefit from and put it under the name Web 3. For me, it's just a marketing term that a, a small group of people get to benefit from. I feel like ESG, I've taken some time with ESG to, to really try and understand and consider it, but all I can see is that it is a marketing term which can be used by a small group of people to line their own pockets. I'm in complete agreement with that, so 100%. Huh. Um, I just had a question. So if we take it back to inflation, the Fed started tightening today. Um, do you think that'll have an impact, like, quickly? Uh, I do. Can you, in fact, can you explain what tightening is? Because everyone knows what QE is, but... So, the, so they're just going to allow their bonds to run off, and they're not going to go into the marketplace and, and buy more mortgage-backed bonds or, or, or other types of bonds in the marketplace. So, you know, there's a $9 trillion uh, balance sheet that they have now, and they're going to, starting effectively today, they're going to reduce their balance sheet by $47.5 billion a month and then ramp that up to $90 billion in September of this year. Um, so th it's one less buyer in the marketplace for those bonds, and yields are likely to go higher. And if there's not a market, the yields could go considerably higher, and then the, you have a problem. Can we go back even another step and explain the whole process of what's happening there? So uh, some people listen and be like, I don't even understand what is going on here. What, who's buying what? What? Why? <laughs> so the Federal Reserve expanded their balance sheet very substantially in the recent past. Yeah. And um, so they would go out and buy, be a buyer of various fixed income securities in the marketplace, particularly mortgage-backed securities. So the housing industry, because it's such a critical part of our economy. And they would go out there and bid for them, those bonds. They're going to basically start. Why though? Why would they bid for them? To create a market to lower interest rates to put people into homes etc all, all of the things that you know interest rates got down to very low you get 30-year fixed mortgage uh, you could have gotten like a two and a half not too long ago now it's over five percent so they were trying to drive down rates to stimulate economic activity but to do that are they literally printing money they're literally printing money they print money and go and buy the bonds and that money goes to who it goes to whoever the dealers of, of those securities, so the big money center banks and uh, the investment banks on Wall Street. And then they end up owning those securities. Do they ever get paid back? They, they're supposed to get paid back, or they're supposed to let them roll off now. Now, so let's say they're gonna, there's going to be a maturity in 
I think the first maturity is like June 15th. Uh, they're going to not take any capital that they get and they're going to basically not go back into the market to buy. But, but not until September. No, no. Starting, starting now, yeah. And the first maturities, I think, are June fifteenth. But you said they would start buying back again. No, no. They're they're, they're going to uh, allow more to roll off. So starting with forty-seven and a half billion dollars starting today, come September, they're going to allow that to increase to ninety billion dollars. Oh, increase to ninety billion dollars. How much do we know? How much they're holding? Trillions. Right. Trillions. And the impact of doing that will be rising interest rates? Likely to be rising interest rates. They don't know. In fact, Jerome Powell said they're uncertain what the impact is going to be, but they said that it could be as much as a quarter of a point, the equivalent of the Federal Reserve raising the uh, Fed funds rate by a quarter of a point. Is this what you meant when you said they're going to push it as far as they can? So this is a test to see if interest rates rise. But if interest rates rise too much, it'll have to stop because they can't have interest rates too high. Yeah, well, well, interest rates rise too much, brings down the capital markets, stock market, bond market sells off. They derive a lot of revenues from that. The government derives a lot. They'll basically stop it. It'll create some crisis. The, 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 the debt burden in the system that you and Lynn talked about will show up somewhere. There'll be some crisis that will basically require capital infusion and they'll stop themselves. It feels like they're having to thread the finest thread through the smallest hole, <laughs> followed by another hole by another hole. I don't know why Jerome Powell wants this job. <laughs> I, I, it's funny you say that. I, I said he's unqualified because the fact that he wanted to be uh, chairman again means that he didn't appreciate what, what position we're in. So Unless he's I, a psychopath. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know that he is, but I, I think I think he I, I think he could probably go down as the worst Fed chairman in, in, of all time uh, if things unravel. And when you say another crisis will mean they probably have to start QE again, do you think that could be energy prices getting so high that they have to subsidize energy costs? Uh, well, that's that's another reason to to continue spending. So you know, uh, before Danny and I were speaking about uh, before you came down. Um, Federal, state, and local spending is 40% of the GDP of the United States. And okay. they're cutting. Hold, hold, hold on. Let's go back a step. What was that? Federal, state, and local spending is 40% of the GDP of the United States. So 40% of all productivity is, is government spending. As measured by the gross domestic product, yep, it's government spending. Now, wow. the COVID stimulus, the government transfer payments, supplemental insurance, uninsurance uh, payments, et cetera, those are all running off. So you can watch in real time, the GDP is actually going lower. The government still spends more than they bring in from revenues, so the debt burden is going higher. So that's a situation that cannot endure. And the reason why I'm not so enthusiastic about the economy is that if 40% of your economy is contracting, right, the government's spending less money, what is going to make up that and grow? What of the other 60%? Is it going to be the medical industry, the oil and gas industry, et cetera? Not likely to see that grow in any way. So my guess is that you're, if we're not in a recession, we're very close to it and things could get worse. 40, that's blown my mind. I mean, you know, this makes me think of what happened. I know, I know it's an extreme example. It makes me think of what happened under Chavez in Venezuela where I think it... it at one point, one, at one third of all employees work for the government. And once they ran out of money, or once the price of oil dropped, which was the dominant part of the Venezuelan economy, they didn't fire anyone. And that led to printing money and inflation. Right. So unless the government picks up spending, it's going to 
be very challenging to see how the economy is going to grow. So that's why I'm saying they're going to need to find some way to inject more money into the system in order for basically the economy not to roll over. How do they do that? Print more money? <laughs> no, there'll, there'll be some, some reason to do it. Oh, there's a, let's, let's send a stimulus check for people to buy gas because the price of oil is higher. That, those types of things. Huh. I do hope it's not a war. Well, it's uh, possibly. You know, it's, it, it does feel like we're being led down that path. Mm. Um, you know, we, we barely got out of Afghanistan and now we're, you know, involved in Ukraine and sending missiles to to the Ukraine. I don't understand if I was, you know, Russia, how that's not viewed as an act of war against Russia by the United States. So um, I think it's I think it's one of those things It's testing. How much can you get away with? Let's push against the edge of it. Let's let's just see what, how we can test people. Hold on, forty. I'm still can't get over that number. What? Why can't the government reduce the size of government? We had um, in the UK recently uh, one of the ways to uh, curb inflation was the government were discussing reducing the size of government. For the, you know, which to me blew my mind that they would actually consider that, and they were considering something like ninety thousand jobs. I don't know what percent of the government workforce that was, but essentially that that equated to the increase in government workers over the last four years. Um, oh, no, it was something like 20% of workers. And so in my mind, I was like, can you look those numbers up? Yeah. I'll get Danny to check that because the numbers will be important. But it's like, how did the government grow by 20, 30% over that period? Yeah, so, so that's one of the problems that like, my colleague calls it the administrative state. Yeah. And how do you get rid of the administrative state? And you're in there for a short period of time and they're working against you. Or if you're not aligned with them, they're going to be working against you. It's very challenging to do that. And once government grows in that in that way, you know, there's programs that were meant to last two or three years and 40 years hence, they're still in in, in place with, you know, 10,000 people working for that program that should have been shut down, you know, in the 1970s or something like that. So it's it's very challenging. It becomes cumbersome and you know bloated, and society and your debt burden rises, et cetera. And and this is all the stuff that we're seeing right now. That's why it's, that's why it's it's by far the the most challenging time that I've seen in my investment career. And I think it's even though I was a kid when the nineteen seventies, I think it's much more challenging back than than that period of time. Back then, you could actually the debt burden of the percentage of the economy was a lot lower. You could raise rates to basically bring down inflation without impacting it in, in a se- severe way. Um, so I don't think they have those options anymore. Their so, best options is continue to debase. Okay, but what's the end game there? The end game is to grow the, in nominal terms the, the economy um, and to basically pay back your debt in cheaper and cheaper currency. So who's getting screwed in this? <laughs> and anyone who's a fixed income, anyone that's on a fixed uh, salary, et cetera, uh, it's getting screwed by that. So that's, that's what I'm saying. You could see, like, you know, if you're, if you're on a pension and you could, you know, your food bill went up 18%. So you, you thought you were going to be able to live on your pension. Suddenly, you know, wow, my dollar doesn't go nearly as much. The meat costs me twice as much. And now I can't eat meat. I'm going to, you know find us a, a lesser substitute and to get to the point where, you know, I'm not able to afford the things that, that allow me to live and exist and have a life. That means so the wealth divide will grow though in this scenario. hundred percent inflationary period of time, the wealth divide grows dramatically. When you, when you debase the money, the 
Cantillion effect. You debase the money, the people that are closest to the spigot benefit the most, and the people that are furthest away get hurt the most. And that's what we're seeing in real time. Did you find it? Yeah, I don't. It was so they want to cut up to 91,000 jobs to get back to 2016 staffing levels. Yeah. So 90,000, 2016 staffing levels. Did it say what percentage of staff that is? Uh, not here, no. Yeah, but. Let, let, let me know how they do with that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I interviewed um, a chap called Eric Voorhees years ago, libertarian, and uh, and we were discussing the idea of, um, yeah, I was trying to get him to explain to me, you know, how does society operate with no government? He said, look, I don't, I don't even care about that right now. I just want to reduce the size of government. You know, 1%, 5% every year, just reduce a bit. But he said, it never does. It just gets bigger. It gets bigger. It gets bigger. It gets bigger. And, and in getting bigger, you have all these other you know, effects. You have the fact that they think of programs, come up with ideas and probably think of other ideas that curtail our freedoms that go with that. Regulations, Regulations. licenses that you need, um, forms that you need to fill out. Exactly. You're spending three quarters of your life basically just trying to comply and things that we formerly didn't need licenses for, now you need a license, et cetera. So that's, that's the problem. And, and they have a vested interest in staying in those positions, right? They, that's where they derive their income. So it continues to grow. So it's, it's virtually impossible to to really chop it in any meaningful way. Yeah, when I was up in Wyoming, I was with Tyler Lindholm, and he was talking to, talking to me about all the licenses they're trying to get rid of. He, he's explained something like, there's a license to be a hairdresser, a license to do this, a license to do that. It's form filling, it's fees, it pays for bean pushers, bean counters. Um, I, I, I feel like government should have a budget. I feel like government should just have a budget. We, ha I have a budget, you have a budget. Correct. What, what happens if... You know, to, what happens to you or my or Danny if we can't hit our budget? We we have to sell something, or we lose our house. You know, we have to make a decision. I, I would love to have up in my bedroom a printer, and when I've overspent this month and I've gone out too much, had too many dinners, okay, I can go upstairs and print some money. I'd love to have that, but none of us have that. But for some reason, government doesn't, and that's a big problem. Some, some governments have that. They do. Right? Some some government, and obviously the United States has that. Um, and you push it too far, and you debase your currency down to zero, and that's why most currencies go are, are valued at zero within 26, 27 years. So United States has lost 99, 98% of its value since the Federal Reserve started in 1913. It just happens to be the best of a worst. Uh, so my guess is that you keep doing this and now you have this thing called Bitcoin where there actually is an alternative. Uh -huh. uh, there's a finite number and you know what that number is going to be in perpetuity. Uh, that's a real option and it frightens, I think, governments around the world. How, how much of a Bitcoin bull have you become? Um, I understood it almost immediately. Maybe I had the benefit of my colleague who um, has a computer science background and you know he, he explained it to me in terms, he said, one, I think, the, I think the blockchain itself is not gonna be hacked. I think the, the security is gonna be strong enough. And two, he said, uh, the supplies are gonna be 21 million. So I said, well, based on supply and demand, the demand is likely to grow exponentially and supply is not gonna grow exponentially. That's the correcting mechanism, the same with oil and gas is you limited supply, growing demand, you're gonna correct it with the, the price. And I, so I said immediately, with, literally within 90 seconds, I said, I want in. As I studied it further, I realized the benefits that it could have and the, kind of the role of money in society. 
um, I become much more I'm just hopeful. I'd, I'd give up any gains that I ever had in Bitcoin for it to succeed in society to get on that system. Okay, that's a very interesting way to think about it because uh, I, I'm an investor like yourself in Bitcoin. Uh, I want it to succeed. But when I'm trying to explain to people, a lot of people, when I talk to them about it, most early people worry about, will I lose some money? You know, will I lose it? Have I got in at the right time? Uh, one of the things I'm trying to encourage is to people to think about it, it's like it's not just about the money you make, it's becoming part of something that will be better. Just buy a little bit and understand it and realize if you do it and your friends do it and your friends do it and enough of us do it, we've critical mass, we can create a system that's better and fairer. Have you spent much time thinking about the long-term implications of it becoming a d- dominant reserve currency? Um, you know, I, I have, and I've, I've thought about it, and I, and I think it solves a lot of the world's problems. It, you, you take the money out of the hands, you put it onto a mathematical basis. Um, it's much sounder. People can plan for that in, in a much more logical way, know that they're not going to be debased out of their wealth, et cetera. So I, I think it's, uh, it's an important invention. I think it, it, it truly is a real zero to one moment. It, it's kind of the wheel. Um, so I, I'm rooting for it in a way, and I think there's a lot of very powerful forces that are not aligned with that, uh, that would love to see that go away. Um, I think the benefit of time is probably uh, with Bitcoin, because the younger generation is going to be more accepting of it. New politicians, the more and more politicians are going, are going to embrace it. It's becoming a voter block, et cetera. So, yeah, it's definite voter block. There's a real hack. I mean, how many politicians do we have to reach out to us? Probably double digits now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now we turn them pretty much all down now, but we've had, well, I say politicians. These are people running for either local, is it, it, this is not understanding US politics too well, running for Congress or Senate. Yeah. Um, and they've realized if they put Bitcoin in their description and they tweet about Bitcoin, they suddenly get, it's a bit of a hack. Um, and they've asked to come on the show, but we don't have them because they always want to want to tell the, the same story. But then it can become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and one of the things I'm grateful for is, is Republicans at the moment because Republicans seem to support this a bit better. And that's useful for Bitcoin. It gives a certain amount of regulatory protection and I just hope it continues long enough to give it enough regulatory protection. Yeah, you hope you hope it's not going to be political. I mean, it's, it seems to line up more with the libertarian type of view of the world, yeah. um, but I don't think it needs to. I think it really has to do, if you... If you study money and the way it can be debased and the way you can be cheated out of your efforts, I think you'll, whether you're on the left or the right, you'll say, you know what, this thing is worth looking into and worth owning some of. Do a lot of people asking you about it? Um, not, not as much as, as before. I continue to go around and tell like, people you know, that I meet and you, know, you should own a little bit. Um, our, our, our philosophy was that the asymmetric nature nature of it was so great that you didn't need to make a big bet initially and you put one or two percent in it and that one or two percent could basically hedge out really the risk of 99 percent of your other assets um and just leave it alone and um, so i still tell that story now personally i'm i have more exposure to that and i've been in since uh 2000 end of 2015 so um that was a good time it's good. It's good time, but it's you know again. I I would happily give up any appreciation that I have or exposure to it for it to succeed and basically us for to 
put a global standard, uh, you know, monetary standard uh, based on Bitcoin. I'd be happy for that to happen. And with Bitcoin, it's obviously at the moment quite closely tied to equities in terms of the what it does with the price. Do you think that will change and it will become more tied to commodities over the next decade? Yeah, I do. I, do. I, think, I think people that make the correlation issue is, you know, it, it's correlated for nine months and that's, that's a permanent feature. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it's not a permanent feature. I think it changed radically and I think, uh, you know, you're, it's going to have its moment uh, where it will uncorrelate and it will, you know, make your head spin. Um, I, th- I think the only thing that we actually kind of uh, slightly disagreed with the last time we spoke was you didn't think the dollar had collapsed against Bitcoin and I said it had. And the reason I said that is, you know, back when it was a penny, yeah, and now it's thirty thousand, and obviously it was as high as sixty-nine thousand. That to me is a collapse. So you're going to see it at some point, in my opinion, some point, well into the many millions of dollars it's going to cost to buy a single bitcoin at some point in the future. Well, that would be true, truly incredible. I could, that that would help me with my my football club. And I'm I'm guessing do you, you don't really look at the other cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, not really. Uh, you know, so. Again, I think Bitcoin is is the wheel. Um, the other nineteen thousand plus <laughs> cryptocurrencies, I, you know, it's just too many. I, I could spend the, my rest of my life, and I wouldn't get my arms around most of them. And it's and it's like what you said; they're they're meant to enrich a handful of people. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a Bitcoin maxi. It's the only one I own. I don't mind this one called Monero. I'm kind of okay with that. I'm interested in that. We've got an interview with somebody regarding that soon because it's uh, he has a different uh, set of privacy trade offs from Bitcoin, and I'm. I'm, I'm interested in that. I don't really understand Bitcoin privacy to the extent I know what it is, but I don't understand how to manage my privacy. But with someone like Monero, it's really taken out of my hands. But there are, you know, the other 19,000, 20,000, I, I just think it's all nonsense. Yeah. And I wish that I wish the money people were putting into that, they would put it into Bitcoin. I think, I think you're seeing with the shakeout that we've had more recently, I think more and more people are being converted because unfortunately they got hurt because yeah. they didn't fully understand what Bitcoin is and the monetary policy behind that. And if you can create an unlimited supply, why is that any different than Jerome Powell and the European Central Bank being able to print money at will? Um, so the, the, the great thing about Bitcoin, it's finite and you're up against assets that are going to continue to expand. And so at some point in, in dollar terms, in euro terms, in yen terms, Bitcoin is going to be priced at a much, much, much higher level. Well, I, I take a different level of risk because something like 90, 95% of my money is in Bitcoin. <laughs> where would Peter, do, if I wanted to divest out a little bit just to, just to spread my risk a little bit, where would you tell me to put a bit of money? Yeah, so I would be still very concerned about inflation and you, you need to find those companies that are gonna grow their cash flow faster than inflation. Um, our, our product, I'll give a little plug. Please I, give it a plug. I, INFL, uh, it's, a, it's an exchange traded fund um, that it's gonna be a, a nice hedge for it. So I, 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 it's not a binary bet and don't sit here and like I'm all doom and gloom. If inflation subsided tomorrow, that fund will get you an adequate rate of return because the underlying companies themselves are going to, in an inflationary environment, you're, you're likely to do extraordinarily well. Is that ETF looking to outperform CPI or is it looking to outperform the other number that you think you have? It's the other number that I'm thinking about, the M2 number. So can I buy that from the UK? Uh, 
don't know, but we're likely to be starting a usage fund uh, in the not too distant future that will be available to European investors. Uh, anything else? Like, what about gold? Is gold something you think people should be having? Um, not the miners. We have exposure to some of the royalty companies that's similar um, to characteristics that uh, TPL has. So they, they buy a royalty stream in various mines, a company called Franco Nevada that okay. we've owned for a long period of time. has been a great investment. Um, I, I could see... Personally, that gold could become demonetized as a result of the rise of Bitcoin. Wow. Um, it shift one like that. You may not like that. Um, I, I don't know that it's going to entirely because there there are uses where you know in theory the industrial yields, yeah. Um, but but I, the, the industrial is different than the monetary. I, I could see that you know in in times of real physical unrest, gold might be a, a pretty good option for people. Um, so maybe it's never going to be demonetized completely. Um, I would say oil and gas companies, um, particularly the Canadian ones that are still very attractive, um, trading at ridiculously low generational, low, you know, cash flow multiples. Um, I think they're going to do incredibly well. They'll outrun inflation. So, you know, the exchanges that I mentioned also. So if I was reading your newsletter regularly, I'd know all this. You, you know, you, you certainly would have been aware of inflation um, and it's coming in with a vengeance. We would have been uh, made that call for you. And it's, in our opinion, it's not only not transitory, it's here and, it's, and it could, in theory, get much, much worse. And, and I'm an optimistic guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 are you, what are you optimistic about? You can't say Bitcoin, we've covered that. I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll, we'll end up you know, navigating this. Um, I think uh, cryptocurrency in, in the sense that uh, there's now this new technology, that is a zero to one moment. Um, there's, there's a real option there to change the way the world operates and functions for the better. So I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to Bitcoin on that. So I'm optimistic about that. And, and, I, and I, think, I think longer term, you know, the, the availability of information um, is making society a better, it's, it has its fits and starts. And I think people basically can ferret out information better than they ever could. And I think that governments around the world um, can't quite keep up the clandestine um, operations that they have without being exposed. And I think more and more people are waking up to that. Well, the Bitcoin mirror, I think is a good thing. Yes. I, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic with Bitcoin. Uh, I look forward to seeing the, the things it does that I, I'm not even prepared for, the unknown unknowns with Bitcoin. Uh, wh what do you want to plug? While you're here, anything else? Um, really, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> How do people sign up to the newsletter? So, so, so we uh, they can go to our website, horizonkinetics.com, um, and we have various products. We have mutual funds. We have uh, the inflation beneficiary uh, fund that I mentioned to you. Uh, so they can sign up and buy some of the research. Or actually, we give away a lot of the research for free. So just go there and read some of that. I, I tell people that if you read the research and you don't find it of interest, it makes it easy for you to make a decision about who we are. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, people find us. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to definitely check out your ETF and see if I can invest from the UK. If I can't, we'll have to wait till you launch. But I uh, appreciate you coming on. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's some scary things happening, but there is there is stuff to be optimistic about. Yeah, 100%. So. I, I think you just need to be vigilant about it. You need to be paying attention about, um, you know, the types of investments. I, I would say stay away from, you know, these high multiple growth companies that um, I think they have very suspect accounting. I think the PE multiples are likely to contract, uh, you know, in a way that's going to make people's heads spin. 
All right, Peter, well, listen, appreciate you coming in for this. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, then please head over to the What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review.